Today's scripture comes from Genesis 41, 9 to 14. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, New Hope. It's uh, always great to see you all and worship God with you. If you haven't been around uh, for the past few weeks, we have been tracing the life of a man and the story of a family. And the man is Joseph. And when, if you, like I said, if you haven't been around for the past several weeks, um, when we first met Joseph, he's 17 years old. And at first glance, Joseph looks like he hasn't made. His family is prosperous. His dad loves him more than any of his siblings. To top it all off, Joseph receives these dreams from God. And these dreams tell him that the future is even brighter for him. Things are going to get better than they already are. One day, Joseph is going to be so great and so powerful that people are going to bow down to him. In fact, even his own family will bow down to him. What could be better, right? But it turns out that there is a lot wrong under the surface. Generations of family sin are destroying this household from the inside out. The first two episodes of the story of Joseph, filled with violence, deception, abandonment, the family is utterly dysfunctional. And God doesn't hide that from us. But yet, as we read each of these episodes, there are these indications throughout that there's a sovereign God who is present in the midst of all that brokenness, all the muck, all the dysfunction. And this God who is present, he is doing something good. In the big picture, he's working out his covenant promises to his people. He's doing some amazing things in the lives of these individuals as well. As a matter of fact, the more you read, the more you begin to realize that maybe the story of Joseph and his family isn't really a story about Joseph and his family after all. It's really a story about God. You start to realize that God is, in fact, the primary character in all of this. He's the one we're really meant to see and know and come to love as we read through this narrative. So not long after Joseph has those dreams, he's assaulted by his brothers And he's sold to human traffickers who take him off to Egypt. And eventually he ends up owned by and in the estate of this powerful government official. And and the narrator tells us, quote, Joseph became a successful man. He's a slave, remember, but he's a successful man. God caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. It's, It's this amazing indication that through all the disappointment, All the betrayal, all the hurt, a sovereign God is present. 
And, and he's doing something here. He's doing something in Joseph, and he's doing something through Joseph as well. It's a reminder that this sovereign, loving God of the universe permits what he hates to achieve what he loves. It's something we saw last week. These are the words that come from a woman named Joni Erickson Tada. And um, if you didn't go out and, and, and look her up after last Sunday, I want to encourage you to go out and look up Johnny Erickson Tada. And I think that you will learn from her story, much as you learned from Joseph's story, about how God permits what he hates in people's lives in order to achieve what he loves. All of what God is doing here is not yet clear, but it will get clearer. It gets a little clearer today, actually, as we read through Genesis 41. So soon, Joseph, who, remember, he's sold off into slavery. He's in the house of this government official whose name is Potiphar, by the way. Things are going well for him, but they don't go well for very long because soon Joseph is assaulted by his master's wife. He's not, she's not, he's not just propositioned by her. He has actually physically assaulted by her. He's falsely accused of rape, and he's sentenced to prison where he spends the next 13 years. So I want, I want to just pause to picture that for a moment, okay? Here's Joseph, a foreigner. He's a Hebrew man in an Egyptian prison, and he has to live with this label while in prison of sexual offender. Imagine the shame. Imagine the treatment that he receives. Psalm 105 talks about Joseph, and it says that Joseph's feet were hurt with shackles while he was in prison. His neck was put in a collar of iron. That's what Psalm 105 tells us. But even while he's in chains, Genesis 39 says, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him, listen, showed him steadfast love. God has not abandoned this man. God has not exited from the story. In fact, in Joseph's worst years, he's coming to know more deeply the steady love of God. He's coming to know more intimately the love of God. So as we come to episode 5 today, that's here in, in Genesis 41, I believe we're going to see that God's power and presence become all the clearer, and, and, and they become clearer than ever before. This is a major turning point in the storyline. So let's look at this major turning point in the storyline. We're going to look at it as, as three acts. Okay, three acts. Act one, Joseph is remembered. Act two, Joseph is redeemed. And then act three, the world is rescued. So act one, Joseph is remembered. The, the action begins in the royal Egyptian palace. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is sleeping. He's dead asleep, and, but, but this time he's the one who's actually going to have a couple of very strange dreams. One dream involves cows. The other dream involves grain. Strange, right? Both of those are important food sources in Egypt, by the way. In his first dream... Seven healthy cows come out of the Nile River and begin to graze on the riverbanks. In northern Africa, by the way, in places like Egypt, cows graze on the banks of rivers. It was a normal scene. And, and, and cows would also wade in the, in the river. They'd, they'd go into the water to escape the, the intense heat of the sun and, and mostly to get away from all the flies, too. 
So what Pharaoh's seeing here in his dream is very normal. He says, it's as if I was standing on the banks of the river and I'm seeing a normal Egyptian scene. But then in Pharaoh's dream, seven more cows come out of the water and they stand on the river bank. Only these seven cows, the new ones, they're, they're unhealthy. They are scrawny animals. The first cows looked healthy. They were fat. They were strong. These next seven look scrawny. And, and here's where it gets really weird. The unhealthy cows eat the healthy cows. This very normal scene goes completely sideways. And that's enough to wake Pharaoh up. He's woken up. He's troubled by this. But he, he's able to go back to sleep. And when he goes back to sleep, he starts to dream again. And this time he dreams of a, a stalk of grain. And, and some people think it may have been like a, a corn stalk. And it's got seven ears of grain or seven ears of corn growing on it. And it's flourishing. It's healthy. But then on that same stalk, seven more ears of grain sprout up. And they look half dead. They look weak. And here's where it gets extra weird again. The seven unhealthy ears of grain eat up the healthy ears of grain. And, and the text says, look at verse 7 here. It says, And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. It all felt so real to him as he stood there on the riverbanks looking at this strange dream. It felt so real when he wakes up, he can't shake it off. It starts to haunt him. And somehow, Pharaoh knows that there's an important meaning in this. I can't just brush this aside and go on with the rest of my day. So look at what it says in verse 8 of Genesis 41. It says, So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. Calls for magicians, not because he wants to see a magic show. He's not trying to distract himself from his scary dream. The magicians, the wise men, these people served as counselors to the king. They, they had the power to guide Pharaoh. They were trained and experienced in explaining dreams. But they don't know what to do with these dreams. Maybe they tried to interpret them, but Pharaoh is not satisfied with their explanations. Because look at what it says in verse 9. Let's read from there. It says, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the, other, and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on that same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. What a turn of events here. You see, here's one of these two officials who were in prison with Joseph. Just a couple of years earlier. Joseph interpreted their dreams for them, and all he asked of this cupbearer was, put in a good word for me with Joseph, I mean with Pharaoh, when you get out. Tell Pharaoh about me and my plight. I helped you out, after all. And I'm innocent. I don't belong in prison in the first place. I don't even belong in Egypt. The cupbearer may have said, sure, I'll put in a good word for you. You'll hear from me soon, or you'll hear from someone soon. But once the cupbearer is freed, 
Joseph is out of sight. He's out of mind. He's no longer needed, no longer useful. So the cupbearer never brings up his name again until now, two years later, finally. Why? Because it looks like Joseph is needed once again. Joseph has become useful, so he's remembered. Some people have said that the true judge of someone's character is how they treat people who can do nothing for them. Ever hear this? I think there's truth in this. In other words, how you treat people when you don't need their help says a lot about you and your character. But but as we look at the cupbearer and we look at this turn of events, I don't think we're just meant to learn how to treat people better. There's something even more important for us to see here. I believe that you and I need to see ourselves in the cupbearer and think about the way that we relate to God himself. How many of you have cried out to God for help when you were in need? When, when danger or disappointment was at your door or fear, what was, what was it for you? Maybe, maybe it was some kind of trouble. It could have been a a relationship that was falling apart and you were worried because you didn't know how to save this relationship. Maybe it was an unexpected layoff. You faced unemployment. Maybe it was a terrible diagnosis that you received. You received that bad diagnosis. You were sick. Or, or maybe it was someone you love who was sick. What was it for you that left you feeling helpless and afraid? to the point that you cried out to God. And what did the Lord do when you cried out to him? Can you remember? Did he he comfort you? Did did God meet you with strength and, and, and give you some clarity? Did he carry you through in spite of the pain and the fear and the sadness you were experiencing? In other words, when you cried out to God, did he help you? Maybe he healed you. Maybe he caused you to recover physically in ways that you did not expect. He brought you through medical procedures and recovery. Maybe he rescued your child or someone else that you love. You asked, he answered. Did Did he maybe provide the job that you needed? And the finances that you were worried sick about? Did he, did, he, did he heal your relationship that was broken? Or, or maybe, maybe he didn't heal your relationship, but he proved to you that he would never leave you or forsake you, even if you lost that relationship and it failed. In other words, I'm asking, did God show you his steadfast love? When you were in need, did he show you his love? You you felt his nearness in that season. You felt his care for you. But but like the cupbearer, when it was well with you once again, did you remember him? Or did you forget? Have you continued to forget him? You see, I'm asking, are you the cupbearer? You know, when you read the Psalms, you'll notice that many of them are built like this. 
In fact, the psalm that Nancy just read to us, portions of Psalm 40, is built like this. The psalmist often starts out by pleading for help. I'll give you an example. Psalm 71. He says, Oh God, be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. And, and then the psalmist, says, as the poem, as the psalm goes on, he says something like this. Psalm 71 again. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed. And, and listen, my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day. It's what we see in Psalm 40 as well. We just read. Thank you for reading to that to us, sister. He says, I, I waited patiently for the Lord. I asked him for help. And then what does he say later on in Psalm 40? He says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. You see, I cried out, God helped, I praised him, I thanked him, and I told everybody else about what God had done. I remembered his kindness, I remembered his steadfast love, and I couldn't stop talking to others about it, and I couldn't stop singing and praising him. That's the pattern we see again and again in so many of these psalms. There's trouble, he cries out for help, and the result, after the help comes, the result is a person who knows God and loves God more intimately than before. But for some reason, for so many of us, the process doesn't look like that. We're in trouble, we ask for help, God rescues and then what comes next? A return to normalcy. <laughs> a return to, to thankless, entitled forgetfulness. Like the cupbearer. Does that sound familiar to you? Remember, I'm asking, are you, are we, the cupbearer? Let, let's look at this from a slightly different angle, okay? Was there a time when God caused you to see how much you needed his forgiveness? Was there a time of trouble for you? And the trouble wasn't that you received a diagnosis or that you received um, some bad news about your job or, or your grades. It wasn't that you were having trouble in school. It wasn't that a relationship was broken. It was worse than that. God brought you to a place where you felt the weight of your own sin and guilt. That was the Holy Spirit in you, working, moving in you, showing you that you couldn't make yourself better. You couldn't work this off. And you knew that your only hope was grace. Your only hope was the undeserved, ill-deserved forgiveness that comes from God. So in that, in that moment, you said, Jesus, I know that I need a Savior and you're the only savior there is. You loved me and, and you died for me in my place. And so, Jesus, I believe in you. I trust in you. I love you. You are Lord, and I want to live for you. 
And, and following that, maybe you were, you were baptized before other friends and family and believers. And in that baptism, you declared that Jesus is your Lord and that you are his disciple. What's happened since? Have you forgotten? Have you been so distracted by a million things that now Jesus is out of sight and out of mind? Has that same kind of entitled, unthankful spirit, or maybe it's not a sense of entitlement, maybe it's just a, a lack of gratitude, and maybe it's just a forgetfulness. Has a spirit of forgetfulness set in that says, I'm just not in need anymore. At least I don't feel my need as much as I did. And just like the cupbearer and Joseph, Jesus doesn't feel like he's all that necessary right now. Maybe he will be in the future, but not right now. For many of us, I believe that the cupbearer is, is a mirror. And if you see yourself in him, there's only one thing to do, and I believe it's to confess that. It's, it's not to, to make excuses or to justify or, or, or rationalize or distract. I think the only real healthy response is to confess it. To humble yourself and come to Jesus with confession and gratitude and the praise that he deserves. Or simply the confession that your heart feels cold and doesn't really feel like praising him. Because the fact is that whether we believe it or not, you and I are just as much in need now as we were when everything spiraled out of control and we cried out and he rescued. Things haven't changed as much as you think they have. When you were in trouble, did Christ feel near to you? Maybe that sense of intimacy that you had with him, that sense of his nearness, maybe it's gone now. And, and maybe you're waiting for it to come back, waiting for something to happen. I want to encourage you to stop waiting. Instead of waiting, I want to encourage you, like the cupbearer right now, to say, I remember my offense. I need to confess it. I need to humble myself and go back to the same God who rescued me and go back to him in prayer. Now, don't wait for the feeling to come back. It's better to face reality and admit your offense and your need now. I encourage you, go read Psalm 40. Read Psalm 71. And as you read it, know that that's you, whether you realize it or not. Yes, you were in a pit, like Psalm 40 says, and like Joseph was, and God came and rescued. But even now, there's need. You may not see it, but it's there. Ask him to open up your eyes to your neediness, and ask him to foster in your heart the gratitude and the praise. Although you forgot him, he will remember you. Although you forgot him, he will remember you, and he is ready to meet you with mercy and power.
In Act 1, Joseph is remembered. Let's look at Act 2. Joseph is redeemed. He's redeemed. Look at verse 14. We'll start there. It says, "Then, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. So, so listen, they fetch Joseph out of the pit, it says, by the way, which gives you a sense of what conditions were like in an Egyptian prison, right? When they call a place the pit, it doesn't sound so good, right? They took him out of this dungeon, this pit, this prison, he shaves, he gets changed, gets cleaned up. And by the way, when, when he, he's not just doing this because he's been in prison a long time and he smells nasty and he looks nasty. He's, he shaves for cultural reasons too because Hebrew men typically wore beards. Egyptian men did not. So he's going to meet Pharaoh. When in Rome, do as the Romans. When in Egypt, do as the Egyptians. He shaves. He may have even, in fact, shaved his head. Egyptians would do that normally as well. Great sense of style, in my opinion, the Egyptians had. That's neither here nor there. Pharaoh doesn't waste time, though. He says, Joseph, I've heard that you interpret dreams. And, and what Joseph says here in response is fascinating. This last line, don't miss this in verse 16. This is fascinating because what Joseph says here is really risky. And, and think about this. If, how excited do you think Joseph must be to be out of the pit? Standing in front of Pharaoh of all people? Here's his chance to finally get free. And Pharaoh says, I hear you interpret dreams. Verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. In other words, actually, no. I can't. I, I don't have it in me. Now, now that, that's, there's humility there. Deep humility. There's also a lot of courage there. The courage to be honest. <laughs> and, and then it's followed by these words of deep faith. Joseph says, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, now compare that to the Joseph we met back in episode 1. Genesis 37. Compare this to the cocky kid in the robe that his daddy gave him who's strutting, at least in my imagination, I picture him strutting, and he says, guess what? I had a dream. You're all going to bow to me one day. He's pampered. He's favored. He's entitled. But yet here he is after 13 years of pain and loneliness and the experience of God's presence and power with him, right? So there's the pain and the loneliness, and at the same time, there's God's presence and power. Over 13 years of experiencing that, he comes before Pharaoh, and he says, I don't have it in me. He doesn't even try to make a deal with Pharaoh. He doesn't try to leverage power and say, well, Pharaoh, what will you do for me? I mean, what's in it for me? If I interpret your dream, what do I get out of this? Instead, he says, I can't do it. He's saying, if it's up to my intelligence, if it's up to my inherent wisdom and, and grit, if my freedom depends on me, I can't do it. I cannot redeem myself. 
Remember, God permits what he hates to achieve what he loves. And what God has achieved in Joseph thus far, through the suffering, through the molding, what he's done is he's accomplished, he's created a humble, courageous servant leader. Joseph has become this, this servant leader who knows his God intimately, has full faith and confidence in God, right? He says, God can do it. In fact, he says, God will do it. But he's lost the cockiness and the self-assuredness. It's not in me. He's become a servant leader who trusts that God can and will do whatever is needed. What we see here is a beautiful transformation. So Pharaoh tells his dream to Joseph. And, and, and then he says in verse 24, I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. And what does God do? Just as you would expect, God provides an interpretation through Joseph. So Joseph explains to Pharaoh, he says, listen, both dreams, they're telling you the same thing. Egypt is going to experience seven, here's what the seven cows and the other seven cows and the seven um, stalks and the other seven stalks mean. It means that Egypt is going to experience seven years of healthy crops, of prosperity. And then there's going to be seven hard years of famine that follow. And, and notice, if you read that section, you'll notice that God's sovereignty is all over it. Because according to Joseph, he says, the dream that you received is from God. The interpretation is from God. The natural events that I'm predicting are from God. It's all from God. God also provides a, a plan through Joseph. And it's a very specific plan. What Joseph says is, look, Pharaoh, what you need to do is you need to select a wise man. He doesn't say, choose me. He just says, you need to select a wise man, make him a leader over the nation, and you need to set in motion this program to collect 20% of the nation's food over the next seven years in order to store up for the years of famine that are ahead. He explains all that in verse 33 through 36. And, and as he's going through that plan, it's starting to become clear why God brought Joseph to Egypt in the first place, isn't it? God brought Joseph to Egypt because God is going to bring famine to Egypt. God brought Joseph to Egypt to bring rescue in the face of the famine that he's also bringing to Egypt. What happens next here is I believe this is the most drastic promotion in history. Because in the AM, Joseph was in a pit. Now he's listening to these incredible words. Listen to what Pharaoh says. Verse 38, let's read it. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is, listen, the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, see, Joseph was so clear about who the interpretation was from. God, Joseph was so clear about who the power was from, about who was really doing all the heavy lifting here, that Pharaoh sees it too. He says, hmm, it's not just that you're a smart guy, because you are clearly a smart guy, but the Spirit of God is in you. And God has shown you all this. And he says, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Verse 40, you shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Think about this. Joseph is hoping that this is his ticket out of prison. I don't think that he had any idea that this is where it was headed. He's not just getting out of prison here. He's becoming a sort of prime minister over the entire empire. The Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 41, 
See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. This, by the way, gives Joseph the authority to sign documents in, in Pharaoh's place. And he clothed them in garments of linen, fine linen, and, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. It seems that what's going on here is that this goes from just being a personal meeting with Pharaoh into a ceremony, a ceremony where Joseph is given the ring, and he's given the fine linen, and he's given the chain, and then it seems like they they have some kind of parade here. It's some kind of parade through the streets where Joseph is put in a, in a chariot, second only to Pharaoh's, and they're, and they're marching through the streets. These kinds of strange political parades that you see in old newsreels from the World War II era. I've heard that our president wants to do something like this now, which is incredibly odd. But in any case, this is the ancient world, and they're having this majestic parade, and Pharaoh's not the only one that everyone's bowing to. Before Joseph, they are being told, bow down. Now think about this, guys. Finally, redemption has come for Joseph. It's not only freedom. He's getting more than freedom. He's getting authority. He's getting honor. And, and, and as Pharaoh puts that gold chain on his neck... And he gives him all the fine linen to wear. I wonder if Joseph's memory is flashing back to the coat his father gave him. I wonder also if he's flashing back to the day that his brother stripped that coat from him just before they sold him. Or I wonder if he's flashing back to that day when his master's wife stripped a coat from him right before he was sent to prison. But here God is clothing him again. God is clothing him with honor, with authority. And and when the Egyptians start to call out before him, bow down, everyone, Joseph is coming through. He has to flash back to those dreams, right? Those dreams he had when he was a 17-year-old kid. So much had happened to prevent those dreams from coming to fruition, but in God's sovereign hand, all of it, all of it, had been used to make the dreams actually become a reality. Joseph is finally redeemed. Do you see the power of God in all this? God is able to take even our sins, even the sins of others against us, and fold them into his plan. So he takes the self-centeredness of this favorite child He takes the the favoritism of a father. He takes the violence of these older brothers and the greed of human traffickers. He takes the lies of that powerful woman in Potiphar's home. He takes the ingratitude of the cupbearer. He takes all of it and he uses it. God's not the author of sin. God does not sin, nor does he ever force us to sin. Each of those individuals is responsible for their own wicked choices. They're each responsible for their own stupid choices. And yet, mysteriously, in ways that you and I cannot fully understand or explain, 
and all-wise, sovereign God accomplishes redemption, not just in spite of those sins, but through all of it. Not just in spite of the efforts to stop him, but through those efforts. Now, this, um, this might seem like a, a strange application to draw from this episode, but I want to encourage you, those of you who have been praying and asking for God to intervene in the, li- in the life of someone that you love, Are are there people in your life who you want to know and love the Lord? You desperately want them to know God and love him. And yet they they seem so far from that. Maybe they're disillusioned with God. Maybe they're just so wrapped up in themselves they don't see their need for God. Maybe they're just uninterested. And you try to make them interested in the gospel, but there's really no response. It's as... It's as hopeless as trying to get me to be interested in figure skating. I can't get into it. I can watch it. I can appreciate some of the beauty. But I'm never going to choose to watch it. And I can't get into it. You can try to get me excited about it. It's just not going to happen. In fact, if the Olympic Committee themselves made changes to the rules so that I could actually understand the rules or if they made any sense to me, I still probably wouldn't get excited about it. Or if they change the outfits and put them in better-looking attire, I still don't think I'd get excited about it. Now, if you love figure skating, I think that's awesome. Praise God, I'm sure I'm interested in things that you'd find very boring as well. But you are trying to make these people in your life, this particular, but maybe it's one person in particular that you've just been trying to get them to get amped up about who Jesus is, and it's just not working. Maybe they feel sufficient and fine. Here's what I want you to see. None of that is a barrier to a sovereign God. There's nothing wrong with you seeking to make God interesting to them. I just think that sometimes we can go crazy trying to do that. Like we need to make everything more fun, more attractive, more exciting in order to get people interested in God. I don't think it works. But the disinterest, the self-sufficiency, the lack of excitement, it may feel like a serious barrier to us, but it's not a barrier to God. Look at Pharaoh for a moment. Culturally, this man is as far removed as possible from the God of the Hebrews. He has his own system of beliefs. He has his own gods. And his system does not include Yahweh, the God of Israel, at all. In fact, Pharaoh was thought to be a god himself. He was a divine ruler with authority to do whatever his heart desired in his empire. He lived under the illusion of his own sovereignty. But God breaks into Pharaoh's consciousness. Even while Pharaoh is sleeping soundly in the safety of his palace, he cannot ignore it. And and God is also about to break into Egyptian history as well and unsettle everything. He's going to overturn the nation's economy so that the nation will realize its only hope is in Yahweh. I'm not saying that Pharaoh became a worshiper of the Lord. I don't know that he did. But what I'm saying is this. God can lovingly intrude into the life of anyone. And God is able to lovingly intrude into the life of the person that you feel like you just can't get. He can trouble and awaken anyone. 
Just like he intruded into the quiet darkness of Pharaoh's palace and brought Pharaoh to a place where he had to acknowledge the power and presence of God and say, if there's any hope for my people, if there's any hope for my empire, if there's any hope for me, it's only going to be in him. So I want to encourage you to keep asking God to intrude into the lives of those people that seem so far from him. No one is too uninterested. No one is too jaded. No one is too comfortable. So keep asking. Let's keep asking. Let's encourage each other to keep asking. Because it does really feel hopeless sometimes, doesn't it? And, and, and let's not just encourage each other to keep asking. Like Joseph, let's be prepared. Be prepared to demonstrate humble courage and conviction to bear witness to who God is when the opportunity arises. So act one, Joseph is remembered. Act two, Joseph is redeemed. Act three, the world is rescued. Over the next seven years, everything works out just as Joseph had prophesied. There's food in abundance, and year by year, 20% of that food is put in storage. So much, it says in verse 49, that it could not be measured. The Egyptians were great at keeping track. of They were counters, right? They, they, they kept wonderful records. And yet they even came to a point where they were like, I can't even count this anymore. It's like the sand in the sea. There's so much grain. God provided in abundance. But the hard years were just around the corner. So it says in verse 53, seven years of plenty occurred in the land. That came to an end. In verse 54, the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph has said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. Imagine this. Think, think about what you know about famine in modern terms. What, what have you seen? Have you seen some images? Have you been present in a famished environment? Have you seen the effects of no food and no water on a community, on a land? Crops are not coming in. And verse 55 says, all the land of Egypt was famished. Children are starving. Parents are getting desperate. They're wondering how to feed their families. And then in verse 55, it says, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And what does Pharaoh say? It's so interesting. What does Pharaoh say? He didn't say, I got you. I got you covered. No, look closely at what he says. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, no, no, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. And these words, I think, sit at the very center of this whole chapter. Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. Remember those words. Look at verse 56. It says, so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. The whole known world is starving, and the whole known world was rescued. And I think we need to ask, who, who's doing the rescuing here? You might say Joseph, and I think you'd be right. He is a savior in a sense. He is the rescuer in the story in a sense. But I think that if you were to say that to Joseph, I think Joseph would say, like he did back in verse 16, it's not in me. It's the Lord who rescues here. He's the one who raised up Joseph for such a time as this, so that in this season of deepest trouble, Pharaoh could say, go to Joseph. What he says, do it. 
And all of this, as we close, all of this, don't miss this, this entire story is designed to point us to another rescuer. Another rescuer who feeds people who come to him famished. In fact, in the Gospel of John, John 6, Jesus Christ, the true rescuer, says, I am the, not just I have bread, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you're hungry for forgiveness, hungry for acceptance, hungry for meaning, if you hunger after righteousness, Jesus says, come, come here. No one else to go to. I I love the way Isaiah 55 puts it. Some of the most beautiful words in the scriptures, I think. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why are you spending your money on stuff that isn't going to satisfy you anyway? Come to me without money and for free. By grace, I will give you the milk, the wine, the bread, everything you need to live. And you see, it's all free. It's all unbought and ill-deserved. From, from a God who has storehouses full of love, full of forgiveness, full of acceptance. This whole narrative foreshadows that rescuer, Jesus Christ, who according to the sovereign plan of God was betrayed by people who should have loved him, He was framed and forgotten just like Joseph. He was humiliated just like Joseph. But he was humiliated even to the point of death on a cross. And and Acts 4 tells us that all of that happened, not just by coincidence. It happened to do whatever your hand, O God, and your plan had predestined to take place. It was all in the design. And like Joseph... Jesus would rise up from the pit. He'd rise up from the pit of humiliation and from death, and he would rule. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. New Hope, all of this happened so that God could say to a famished, sin-sick world, go to Jesus, and what he says to you, do. Go to Jesus. Whatever he says to you, do. Here's the question. Have you done that? Are you doing that? You know what this is? It's a call to discipleship. It's a call to follow Jesus as a disciple. Go to him to collect the forgiveness, the acceptance, the grace. And then follow him and do whatever he says. You see... The story of Joseph doesn't point, just point ahead to another great rescuer. It points ahead to another great ruler. Is Jesus rescuer to you and is he ruler to you so that you go to him to collect and receive by grace everything he has to offer and you also say, whatever you say, I will commit myself to do. Your words, are, are God's words to you in the scriptures authoritative? Are they, are they precious to you? So that whatever he says, in your failing, blumbering efforts, are you nevertheless committed 
to receive what he says and commit yourself to do it? Is Jesus rescuer and ruler to you? You know, there are so many different lessons that we can take from this episode, lessons that um, we've left untouched today. Lots of them. Joseph shows us the wisdom of preparing for the future. Some people actually use this story as, as, as um, biblical warrant for buying insurance. Preparing for the future. For the famines that might come. Joseph shows us the way to obtain honor and to obtain authority is not by chasing after it, but it's by humbly obeying God and by serving others for their good. We learned that here too. There, there are plenty of leadership lessons in this account. Joseph even teaches us what it looks like to embrace culture, to live within a culture, while remaining faithful to God. I think that's pretty amazing, too. Joseph takes an Egyptian name, he marries an Egyptian woman, he dresses in Egyptian style, shaves up. He becomes an Egyptian for all intents and purposes in some ways, and yet he still lives explicitly as a follower of God. He is in the world and not of the world. There's plenty of lessons for us to glean from that as well, aren't there? But I think that all those lessons, they're legit, they are worth considering, they are important. But the more I dug into this chapter this week, the more I became convinced and burdened. It became clearer and clearer that our focus today needs to be on the one sovereign God, the loving God, who's at the center of this entire story. So that we would be awed by him. So that we would draw near to him. This God who not only directs history, but he enters into the mess of human history in the person of Jesus Christ. He was willing to take our guilt and be crucified for our sins. He doesn't just take our sins and use them to accomplish good things. He takes our sins on himself and dies. Willing to take our guilt and be crucified. And then he gives his spirit and he gives his word as food to anyone who will receive you see, I want us to walk away from this passage saying, I need to go to Jesus and whatever he does, says, I need to do. In, in, um, after April, God willing, after Easter, we're going to jump into the Gospel of John. We're going to hear a lot about what Jesus says to us in the Gospel of John. And in just in a couple of months, or in a couple of weeks, I should say, we're going to start discipleship groups again. We're going to dive into the book of 1 Peter. And in the book of 1 Peter, we're going to learn more about what Jesus says to us about how we should live. Take advantage of those opportunities. And privately, in the privacy of your own home, go to the same Jesus and whatever he says, do. Go to him and listen to what he has to say. He has so much to say to us, doesn't he? Through his word. Go to him and in the power of his spirit, pray to him, cry out to him. If you have neglected or forgotten him, he is right now intruding. Even through his preached word, he is right now intruding in love and in power to call you. To confess your forgetfulness. To confess your ingratitude. You can bring your questions to him. You can bring your coldness to him. You can bring your doubts to him. He can handle all of that. Bring it all. But go to him in prayer with humility and with a willingness to consider his word and respond with faith and, and a willingness to place your entire life under his watchful, sovereign care. Let's pray. God, we ask that by, by your spirit you would do what only you can do. That you would lovingly intrude. That you would lovingly awaken. 
that you would lovingly call us to discipleship. Do what only you can do, O Spirit, we ask. Amen.